book about HIV ostensibly, um, but really what it's, what it's about is networking practices. All the banqueting and carousing and things that, that go on in China, and these things that have become sort of integral to work and governance in China. And the book talks about how these practices led to an HIV epidemic. So I'm not going to talk to you about the epidemiology of HIV. I wouldn't come to the National Committee to do that. Um, what I am going to talk to you about are the practices that led to an HIV epidemic, some very, very Chinese practices that led to an HIV epidemic. Um, and there are two words that are integral and central to this book. Huanxi, uh, which you've probably heard of, and the second term that I'm going to talk a lot about is a term called yin chou. Uh, so how many of you in here have heard the term guanxi? A lot of hands, obviously, right? Um, here I am, right? I'm standing in a, an organization that specializes in you know, U.S.-China relations and educating people about China. Of course you've heard about guanxi, right? And the people who work for the committee are saying to me, you know, of course we've heard about guanxi. Our Chinese name is the Zhongmei Guanxi Weiyunhui, right? It's in our name. Um, so yes, we've all, we all know about Guanxi and, and how central it is uh, to culture in China. And, right? and so a lot of us know about Guanxi, but maybe we can't really define it. Um, so it's, it, it's, these, it's what we call dyadic relationships, these dyadic personalistic types of relationship that are based implicitly on mutual interest and benefit. Um, it's these very, very close relationships, bonds that people have with each other in China. Right? We often describe Guanxi as personalistic relationships. Um, they're a relationship that don't just exist for their social purpose, but for what you get off of them, right? What you can, how you can benefit from them and what they do for you. Uh, in the academic world, we started hearing a lot about Guanxi from a woman named Mayfair Young, um, right? And that those the, that that first line comes from a book that she wrote about Guanxi. Um, and she also, she says about Guanxi, once Guanxi is established between two people, each can ask a favor of the other with <coughs> the expectation that the debt incurred will be repaid sometime in the future. Uh, and, you know, in starting in the 1990s with, with Mayfair Yang's book, we learned a lot about, about this term, about what Guanxi was. Right? And it started with Mayfair Yang's book, uh, gives favors and banquets, and then in 1996, Yan Yun Xiang, who's an anthropologist at UCLA, wrote a book about Guanxi called The Flow of Gifts. He wrote this book from a, from a, a, a village in, in northeast China. Um, I'm standing here on the National Committee, so I can't neglect to mention Tom Gold's book. Um, Tom, in, in 2000, Tom Gold edited a book with Doug Guthrie and David Wank um, about the social connection, connections in China. It was an edited volume, and had lots of contributions from people about right, what Guanxi is all about. And David Wank also wrote a book, um, 1999, called Commodifying Communism. With Mayfair Yang's book and Yan Yin Xiang's book, they lay the groundwork for the study about Guanxi. Um, but beginning with David Wang's book and with and with this edited volume from Tom Gold and um, and Doug Guthrie and David Wang, we start learning about the art of Guanxi. What it's used for, right? So not only what it is, but what can you do? What can you do with it? Why is it so important um, to, to to what people do in China? And we find out that guanxi is used for just about everything. It's really needed for doing just about anything in China. And it turns out that it's 
probably one of the most, if not the most valuable commodity one can have in China, but it's an intangible commodity. Uh, it's not something that you can put your hands on, and it's not something that you can necessarily put an implicit value on. But if you have guanxi, you can get just about anything you need, right? You will be successful um, because you can acquire power, resources, uh, and status, right? Everything that you need to succeed in China. And so we see people start starting to write tomes and tomes about guanxi, right? If you read the business literature, there's lots and lots of literature about what guanxi does for you in business. Um, and even before Mayfair Young publishes her book in 1984, um, in 1994, rather. Uh, in 1984, Martin White and Bill Parrish, two very prominent sociologists of China, write about Guanxi in a book called Urban Life in China. Um, and Tom Gold, in 1986, Tom Gold himself publishes an article on uh, personal relations in China since the Cultural Revolution, an article that he publishes in the China Quarterly. And in 1994, Bian who's a sociologist at um, the University of Minnesota starts to tell us about the importance of Guanxi for urban job uh, allocation. And then David Wang comes out with his book where he describes the importance of Guanxi ties with government officials for succeeding um, in, in business, for, for, for you know, the importance of Guanxi for co corporate culture. Um, and in his book, there's a quote from, from someone who he interviews who says, your market activities depend on the social environment. If your connections, if your guanxi with officialdom are good, then your business can develop. But if they're bad, then the officialdom squeezes you and you can't get anywhere. And these are things that I heard. I heard the same things from people I interviewed in, south, in southwestern China, in western Yunnan. They told me, you know, they had a business, but other people succeeded more because they had guanxi with the government officials. And this, you know, some other poor Chinook didn't have guanxi with the government officials, and so he wouldn't succeed. Um, and we start learning about, you know, other areas where Guanxi is important. Um, even in legal affairs, um, in, in the book that Tom Gold edits, there's a, there's a, a chapter by a guy named, by a, a legal scholar named Pittman Potter, um, who talks about the, the importance of Guanxi in the legal system. And is, and then as, as late as 2007, 2008, um, where we actually see legal reform in China, People are doing research on whether legal reform changes the way mediation is conducted, and they find no, it's not. People are still going to re rely on their guanxi for, for mediation rather than going to the courts, even though they can go to the courts at that chance, at, at that point. Because guanxi is it's just it's so embedded, right? It's so culturally embedded. It's the way things are done in China. Um, so, right? Why? Why would you do things any other way? And there's there's an anthropologist at um, there's an anthropologist who got her PhD at WashU in, in, in St. Louis who does work on child development and discovered that children are aware of Guanxi as young as the age of two. That they won't share things with other kids unless they think they can get something off of it. So it's really a culturally embedded concept. So Let's go on to the, to the other term that I mentioned to you. Yingchou. How many people in here have heard the term Yingchou? So I see still some hands, um, but maybe right, but maybe a, a term that's a little less um, familiar to people. How many people in here have been to a Chinese banquet? I see a few more hands. If you've been to a Chinese banquet, 
then you've engaged in what we call yin cho, right? All the banqueting, carousing, the smoking, the drinking that goes on, the toasting, the karaoke bar going, um, the massage, that's what we call yin cho. Um, and yin cho is integral to building guanxi. So guanxi, we have a definition for guanxi, um, right? People like Mei Fei Yang have, have given, us, given us a definition. Uh, yin cho is not something that's been studied very much. Uh, I'm probably one of, the, one of the first people who really talks about, who analyzes yin cho systematically, and I don't really defy it. Um, it's one of those sort of culturally embedded rituals that I feel can't be translated. Like, you don't know what it is until you've experienced it. Uh, but I, I do have, I have a colleague at, um, at Johns Hopkins, Warner Hansen, who's a historian of medicine, who thinks that I, sh- that I really should, that I, that I should translate it. And so she's for me. She went and looked, looked up Ying Cho in a lot, of, a, a lot of the historical dictionaries and came up with social life. Um, to do something out of a sense of obligation, to do something out of politeness, and in short, social life obligations involving toasting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and that's what we do a lot of. Um, these are rituals that have been used by men since the Song Dynasty to build relationships with each other. And as intangible and abstract a concept as Guanxi is, Ying Cho is perhaps even more abstract but equally as important to daily life in China, right? Everything people do in China, right, when you're trying to build guanxi, is dependent, actually, on these practices of yin cho, because that's how you build guanxi, right? But the question is, sort of, okay, why, right? Why do you need to do yin cho to build guanxi? Um, and it's because of where guanxi comes from, right? If we look at what, guan, what guanxi is and where it comes from, uh, these relationships are relationships that were inherent amongst kin, family members, right? So if we, if we, if we look back historically, right, people who were kin had guanxi with each other. And then as, as things evolved, um, guanxi relationships were had between classmates and people who worked together, people who were army buddies, um, people who came from the same hometown, and people who shared a surname. So there are all these people who have guanxi with each other. Now we get to the post-Mao era, right? And Deng Xiaoping institutes market reforms. And this is when guanxi becomes really, really important to everybody. So if we look at how resources are allocated uh, under this traditional Leninist system that that rules China, everything is state-owned, right? Um, and, govern- and, and government officials are really only allowed to distribute resources to people who are loyal to the party. And you have this market economy that comes along, right? And all of a sudden, state-owned resources have to be distributed to people who aren't necessarily working for the party, who aren't necessarily loyal to the party, but the party needs them. The party needs them to have their resources so that they can build their economy and develop their economy. So somehow we have to figure out a way to distribute these resources to people who aren't necessarily loyal to the party or working for the party, um, right? Because there's an inherent contradiction going on here. And so what happens is they, they turn to guanxi, right? They say, well, okay, if we have guanxi with people, then that, right, trust, is, trust and loyalty is inherent in guanxi. So we can distribute these resources to people we have guanxi with. 
Um, they, those people also have a bond of reciprocity with us, right? Uh, and so, well, what happens when you have entrepreneurs and businessmen who you don't have guanxi with? How do you build that guanxi with them so that you can distribute those resources to them? So that's when they turn to another traditional practice, right? They, they turn to yingchou, this practice that's been used between men to build relationships between men since the Song Dynasty, to build loyalty and trust between men since the Song Dynasty. Um, and so they say, okay, if we, can, if we can see that people trust us, then we can distribute resources to them. And so these practices of Ying Cho started, right? Um, practices that begin with a meal, include all the shared drinking and eating, um, right? The drinking that happens after all these, right? You, 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 you toast someone with flattery and you invite them to a drink, right? And you drink everything in your cup and that shows that you are implicitly loyal. You exchange cigarettes um, and you go out for entertainment, right? You go to a karaoke bar, you go to a massage parlor, a foot massage, um, and you exchange, right? You treat someone to the entertainment and you treat someone to the extra services from the female entertainers that work in there as well, right? Or you send a sex worker to their hotel room. And all of these collective rituals, when all of these things are shared, you build these bonds. You build these bonds that carry this implicit trust in them. Uh, and, and you create an environment where you can distribute these resources outside the state. So, right, this is, these are the scenes that we, that we became used to in China in the post-Mao era. Right? Who here has been to the uh, Great Wall Sheridan? Outside the Great Wall Sheridan, not I don't not there anymore. The lights aren't lit anymore, right? But that those lights were lit outside the Great Wall Sheridan for a very very long time. That's the that's the karaoke bar at the Great Wall Sheridan. Passion, Tianshan um, Renjian, right? A famous spot for um, for government officials to go and entertain people. Um, there's a, there's a hotel down the block from that, the Daolong Hotel that John Pomfret wrote about. You know, he wrote about all the, all the entertaining that went on in the Daolong Hotel. Uh, right, so you see scenes like that, right? That's the inside of, not, that's not the inside of Passion, but it's the inside of a karaoke club comparable to Passion, right? With all the food and the drink, um, people being exchanging cigarettes in there, and the hostesses, these are hostesses who just serve food and drink, but Right, sex workers will be brought in after that. Um, right, that's a that's an upscale karaoke bar. This is not such an upscale karaoke bar. They uh, they they exist at all different levels, all around the country. Right, they 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 dot the streets of China. Um, so right, those are, those are the kinds of scenes that we got that we got used to seeing because Ying Cho, right, these practices have become integral to party politics. And governance in China, they've become work, essentially, right? What we consider leisure, going for a massage, going for a foot massage, maybe going to a karaoke bar, they've become work for the men who govern China, um, right? And be, right because of their of, of their necessity for demonstrating loyalty to the party. Um, that's another. That's an. This is, this is a more recent picture. This is a picture that actually I, I, I took across the street from the WHO office in Beijing. Um, and if you can, interestingly enough, 
everything's in English, nothing in Chinese. Um, but if you could read that small print, uh, it would say, part of it says, the club is an ideal place for your business, negotiation, personal leisure, health preserving, and health care. <laughs> That's where I always go to do my business. Uh, um, you know, and there are little idioms like this that people started recounting to me. Uh, a man who does not solicit prostitutes has betrayed the party central. A woman who does not work as a prostitute has betrayed Jirongji. This is how, right, how integral these, the, the, these practices became to governance in China. Um, so, uh, something that, that a retired official in the area where I did my research said to me once, he said, if you want to be an official and advance up the ladder, you must have personal relations. You cannot advance without these personal relations. And where do personal relations come from? You have to invite them out to eat for a massage, shoot the breeze with them, solicit prostitutes for them, and then they'll see that you're useful. Our country's policies do not permit these things, but our local officials desire them. So slowly, if you give them the impression that you can do these things, you will gradually advance in rank. So they're important not for business. They're important for, right, for climbing up the political ladder as well. So it's no wonder um, that Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign started with the announcement of austerity measures, right? Asking people to order four dishes in a soup, um, right? Because, right? Be- because of how integral these practices became to governance. It's also no wonder that China's experiencing alarming rates of chronic disease, and then it spawned an HIV epidemic in 1989. Not because Deng Xiaoping opened up the windows and some flies flew in, right? <laughs> or if we put it in another way, right, because China now, the Chinese people now have more access to Western ideas and they have more access to wealth. Um, but because the behaviors that lead to these health outcomes have become absolutely necessary for growing China's economy while maintaining its Leninist system. So, this is a typical day for a lot of the men, a lot of the government officials and businessmen who I followed around while I, while I did research for this book. Um, at 8 o'clock in the morning, they'd meet some sort of a guest, uh, someone who they were hosting. They'd meet them for breakfast at one of the local breakfast spots in town. Um, about 8.30, they'd go out and they'd do what they call kao cha. They'd go and right, survey whatever factory someone had, some government official had come to, to visit um, maybe if they were coming on an HIV type of mission, they'd go and survey clinics and hospitals and things like that in HIV programs. Um, 11.30, they'd break for lunch. There'd be a big banquet that would look something like this. Um, right, lots of food, and again, lots of drink. And I love this picture. There's a picture that, right, I'm, I'm in the picture. I love this picture because this guy who was a government official before we, while we were, while we were making that toast, he turned to me and he said, she's my lover. <laughs> Is she pretty? <laughs> um, so men, you know, men travel around with their lovers. Um, the other thing that I like about this picture is, how many of you follow the China file database on tigers and flies? So he's in jail. Um, and I never doubted that if, like, if, if, if there was anyone who was corrupt in the, in the town, that it would be him. Um, and another picture of, this was a festival day, but, you know, again, it's, it's not that atypical what goes on at lunch, um, right? People are toasting each other, they're banqueting, they're smoking. 
Um, so, so that's lunch. And then after lunch, uh, typically they'll go back. In, in southwestern China, they still siesta. They still have an official siesta, what we call xioxi. They'll go back and, the, and they'll xioxi. Um, and the guests could have a sex worker sent to their room by their host. Uh, 2.30 to 5.30, they continue the workday. 5.30, they break for dinner. Again, more scenes of right big banquets with lots of drinking and toasting and smoking. Um, and then there's the entertainment after dinner and midnight snack, right, in the karaoke bars and the massage parlors and the sex workers. Um, and at about 2 a.m., they go home. That's a typical work day for a lot of the people that I know in China. Um, and it goes on five or six days a week. And it's not, it's not unique to this part of China. So I, I do my research in a remote area of western China, of southwestern China that I'll show you in a minute. Um, John Osberg, who's a, an anthropologist at University of Rochester, wrote a book called Anxious Wealth, um, did very similar research but not public health related in Chengdu. Talks about the same things. And the men also, you know, claim that, it, that that this is their work and that they're doing this five or six days a week. It's not this is it's not unique to one part of China. You can hear men all around China talk about these things. Um, so, right, it's also not it's not it's not probably not surprising um, that there are high rates of of sexually transmitted infections in China in China these days, um, and that. Right, this contributed to the spread of an HIV epidemic. Few of the men who I talked to when I was doing this research had had any education about HIV before, before the epidemic really started. Um, right? And even if they did, oftentimes they don't think that they need to use condoms. And so a large HIV epidemic um, erupted in, in this area. Uh, and what I argue in the book is that you know understanding this HIV epidemic isn't necessarily reliant on knowing whether a man used a condom or not, which is what epidemiologists are, are typically interested in, um, but understanding the fundamental causes of the reasons behind all the sex work in China, right? And understanding this system of, of informal governance um, that's been happening in post Mao China, you know, right? Understanding that things like Nincho, that things like right, these banquets. Um, and, the, and, the, and the karaoke and the massages, that it's not just leisure, that it actually is a form of work. And so, so that's one aspect of the book. One aspect of the book is, is talking about these sexual practices and Ying Cho and how they contribute to the spread of an HIV epidemic. Another aspect of the book um, talks about how practices of Ying Cho actually contributed to the incitement of the epidemic. So this is, this is where I did my research. Um, right, so here's China, southwest China, here's Yunnan province, um, the capital of Yunnan is, is Kunming. Um, and in the far western part of the province is a prefecture called Dohong, um, and the, 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 the farthest city in Dohong um, is a city called Rayleigh, which is right on the Burmese border. So if any of you know uh, anything about the the geography of Burma? This this is northeastern Burma. Um, this is where a lot of the a lot of the um, ethnic minority states are. Right. So up here is the Kachin state, and down here and here is the that's the Shan state, roughly. Um, and 
one of the narratives that I tell in the book is why, why this, this is also where the HIV epidemic started in China. So people who study HIV and tell narratives of HIV often talk about epidemics starting in urban centers. They start in an urban center, and then there's, there's rural and urban migration, right? And people come from the rural areas, and they, 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 they contract HIV, and they, they, they bring it back to the rural areas. That's not the narrative in China. In China, the narrative is HIV started in a very, very rural area. It started in an extremely, one of the remotest areas in the world. Um, and it went from there to the urban centers. In 1989, they found 146 drug users um, who were all of ethnic minority populations who were infected with HIV. So Yunnan, for anyone who knows about Yunnan, um, right, has the highest concentration of ethnic minorities in China, uh, 25 ethnic minorities. When we go down to, when we go down to Dohong, um, it's populated by five different ethnic minorities, but primarily by the Dai and by the Jinghua. These are the, uh, if you go across the, the, the border into Burma, these are the Shan people, um, and these are Kachin, if you go across the border and into Burma. Um, and so they found this epidemic there, and it was transmitted by drug use. Uh, not surprising. So over the border here is the second, um, the world's second largest um, production of of heroin, opium and heroin, right? So, and when they when, when they when they turn the opium into heroin, it comes over the border right into Rayleigh, and then it goes out right into different parts of China and different parts of the world. Uh, so, not surprising that it was a drug-induced epidemic. But the thing about the epidemic there is that it's not an epidemic that can be that, that can be stopped, because this is a remote area, but it's also an extremely strategically important area to China, um, as far back as World War II, right? So this is where the Burma Road came into China, right? As the as the Chinese fought off Japanese incursion, right? With the with the um, with the Flying Tigers' help, um, very 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 poor areas. Um, cut off from the global economy, and so they need to figure out ways to support themselves. Very poor economic financially, but very rich in resources. So most of the world's jade comes from here. Uh, there are rubies, there's gold, and there's opium and heroin. Uh, so they have ways to make money. They have ways to support themselves, but they're not, collect they're not connected to the global economy. Uh, so... And, this, and today, this is this is strategically important for China because it's a source of oil and gas. Right? China is so afraid of being cut off from oil reserves if anything happens in the Malacca Strait. So they're dependent on oil reserves that sit off the coast of Burma. There are also large gas reserves in Burma, uh, and so they've built large pipelines that that cross into China right here. This is a very very strategically important place to China. Um, it's very important to them that the area remains stable. And they do pretty much anything they can to make sure that it remains stable. So there's a heroin trade. Um, we know what happens if we disturb heroin trades. There could there can be huge amounts of instability. Um, and the way that the stability, the way that people are kept happy, basically, um, is through acts of incho, right? Through building trust. There's trust built between the local Chinese, the local government there, and the governments, the government on the Burmese side, both ethnic minority governments 
and Burmese governments. There's a lot of trust built at this border <coughs> to, maintain, to maintain stability at that border. Um, and when you come to Rayleigh, they say the, the first order of business for them is to make sure that you leave happy, that you're happy. Um, and so they keep everyone happy. They keep, they, they, they keep the government officials from the provincial capital happy. They keep the government officials from Beijing happy. They know that as long as they're happy, they can maintain their economy, right? And if that economy is maintained, stability is maintained there. So there's a whole narrative in the book of right, how, this geopolitical, how these geopolitical dynamics instigated the HIV epidemic. Um, and just one, one other aspect of the book, and then I'll stop, um, is how the HIV epidemic is, is administered, right? Again, this, these, these are things that require uh, coordination uh, you know, be- between public health officials and the government. Uh, and right, no one does anything in China if it doesn't pay off for them. And so again, right, there's a lot of making people happy, a lot of building trust with people so that you can just get programs in somewhere, right? Um, I'll give you even another example from another book that's being written. There's a book uh, called Infectious Change that's going to come out soon, also from Stanford. Uh, An anthropologist named Kate Mason at Brown. And she writes about the professionalization of the Chinese CDC, or one of the local CDCs of, um, after the SARS epidemic. And one of the things that she, she, she follows around this local CDC in a large city, one of the things that she writes about is a measles vaccine camp, measles vaccination campaign. The WHO came in and said to the CDC, we want you, know, we want you to achieve 100% measles vaccination. And they said, okay. Right? They said this to the city-level CDC. The city-level CDC then had to go to all the district-level CDCs and say, okay, we have to achieve 100% measles vaccine, vaccination. But it wasn't as simple as that. And she recounts this story in the book of how she goes around with this city-level CDC to, to the different districts and how, right, to get them to vaccinate people. Um, there were lots of banquets that ensued. And that's just how things are done, right? Same thing with the administration of the HIV epidemic. So it's a book about how how implicit, how important networking rituals and guanxi relationships are um, to getting things done in China, but also how, how these guanxi relationships and how the act of building these guanxi relationships, it, it, it takes us past, you know, sort of realizing the art of guanxi, um, the institution of guanxi, into realizing how, how guanxi, how the importance of guanxi has affected people's lives and affected their their health outcomes. So, and I just want to, I'm, I'm going to end on one personal note. Um, the book is dedicated to my mother, um, who was an ophthalmologist, had nothing to do with China, um, but had some great vague interest in Chinese artifacts. And when I was growing up, uh, not too far away from here, uh, my house was filled with, you know, little garden seats and, um, vases, right, pots, pots for plants, and all kinds of Chinese artifacts. And that was really what got me into China. Um, and, you know, I, I, I studied, you know, I, I, I was an East Asian Studies minor in college, and um, after that decided, I, I didn't go to China during college, but after that decided I wanted to go to China. And it was actually as my mother was about to pass away that 
that I decided I wanted to go to China. And she said, you know, fine. And um, my father, who didn't understand anything about China either, uh, didn't understand why. Why would I want to go to China? He said, there are diseases there. You know, you can catch those diseases. Um, and so my, my, my reason for recounting this is because I'm standing here in the National Committee on, on U.S.-China Relations, which does a great deal of work to educate people about China. Um, and I can see from my history, right, how important this work is. So I just, Dan is here. I will thank you for all of your work and for everything that I've learned from you on your programs. I'm, I'm, I'm a National Committee program participant. Um, so I'll end it there. Thank you. I think Jan would like to have the first question. I will respond to time and thank you for being such a wonderful participant in our public intellectuals program. Ron is part of our second cohort. Third. Third, third sorry, third cohort of that program. Um, I want to ask, since you talked about your mother and your father, you stress constantly during your talk that it's the men who are involved in doing the Guanxi and the Ying show and establishing this trust among them. And that was fine up until maybe 10, 20 years ago when men were 99% of the time the only people involved in needing to, or the only people who needed to establish this sort of trust. China is changing along with the rest of the world where women are becoming more important, whether it's a government official or a local county official or a head of an, a Donway or the head of a business. So how have the women adapted <coughs> how have the women adapted to this process or and how have women changed this process if at all? Yeah, no, that's that that's a great question. Um, and you know I see a lot of women I won't say I won't say they're they're the predominant of the people who I see, you know, out in karaoke bars and at banquets and things, but you do see a lot of women um, out at, at, at banquets. And oftentimes they're business women who maybe have amassed some money um, and they're able, it's understood that they may not drink um, or sometimes, sometimes they do, uh, but I think oftentimes women are sort of forgiven. Uh, there's a there's a story that I tell in the in the book about a big huge banquet that was actually hosted by a woman. It was a it was a woman. She was she was a businesswoman, and you know she hosted this banquet and she brought everyone to karaoke bar and she paid for everything, but she didn't she didn't really um, she didn't participate as much as the men, right? So I I do think that we see women at the table. Uh, and we see a lot of business women who are at the table, government officials. The government officials who I saw, in, and this is my, in my own experience, government officials who I saw who rose to the top um, in, this, in this city or in, in, in this prefecture uh, rose through the ranks of the Women's Federation. They all rose through the ranks of the Women's Federation and were then somehow able to, to jump over into the party. Um, but... You know, I think a lot of women are excused from a lot from a lot of the activities, but I also still think that, you know, that presents a real a real ceiling for a lot of women. 
So you don't see them having an effect on lessening the importance of this or changing no. it in ways that, you know, baking cookies instead of providing <laughs> No, and I don't, and and I don't, and I don't see these practices. You know, things may change with the anti-corruption campaign, but I don't see these practices um, being changed by much at all. And the, the the conclusion of the book starts with the story of a man named um, Kong Tuizhu, who was the vice governor of Yunnan Province when I was doing my research. And Kong Tuizhu died in 2014 um, as a result of suicide. He. Someone, someone who had been a vice governor with him had been caught in corruption, and I think he, he saw his turn coming. And so actually it was at this time of year, he was in Beijing at the NPC meetings, and um, he went back to his hotel and tried to cut his wrist and his, and his, his neck, um, and he failed. And he was sent to the hospital, and he was given a routine HIV test, and he, he was found to be HIV positive. And the reason why the story of Kong Tuiju resonates with me so much is because I had met Kong Tuiju several times when I was doing my research when he was the vice governor of Yunnan province. I met him on a tennis court. I'd always met him on a tennis court. I, I, I know a guy in Yunnan who coaches tennis to a lot of high-level government officials. And I always admired him because I thought, wow, here's a high-level government official who got to that level by playing tennis. Obviously, I was wrong, and I, you know, I, I thought that he was a pioneer. I thought that he was a sign of things to come, but obviously, I was wrong. So, you know, and there are people who play golf these days, but still, the banquet and that whole process, I think, is the most important. Lots of hands. Uh, Chris, yeah. and if you could introduce yourself as you. Yes, my name is Chris Merck. Um, I recently returned to New York after 17 years in Beijing. Um, a number of those years <laughs> in government relations practice. So I have somewhat different point of view on this. Um, but I'm, uh, I'd like to ask a couple of questions first. There, you had a long quote about the one of the early slides which you read part of, and I wonder what the source of that was. And then I wonder if you could talk a little bit about exactly when you did your research and what the methodology was. Were you doing survey work? If so, how big was the sample? Was it focus groups? Was it individual interviews? And how were those set up? And give us a, a better feel for, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's in the book, but since I haven't yet read it, I, I apologize, I can't. Can't uh, do that. But if you would give us a better feel for the methodology and uh, the um, quality of the data, that would be uh, would be extremely interesting. Um, so the source of the quote was a retired government official. Local. Local. Retired local government official. Um, I could give you like lots of other quotes like that from other government officials um, who I met there. Um, the methodology. Uh, I'm an anthropologist, and this is a, it's an ethnographic account. And so I lived in Rayleigh. Um, it was it's about 18 months of research, most of it in Rayleigh, uh, some of it in Beijing. Uh, and as an ethnographer, I basically implanted myself in the city, uh, and I I became friends with government officials, anyone from the mayor to the local mayor, local party secretary, 
um, the governor of the prefecture, lots of businessmen, and I followed them around. I basically followed them around the prefecture. And they were extremely kind to me. If they were going somewhere, they knew that I wanted to go with them, and they would call me. And they would say, I'm going on a business trip. You coming? Uh, and so I was able to observe them in situ. Um, and, you know, I, I went to their homes. I spent time with their families. I went to their places, you know, where, places where they worked, places where they traveled. Uh, and I was with them. I was with them, you know, all the time. I went to karaoke bars with them. I went to massage parlors with them. Um, and, you know, so I did sort of partic- what we call participant observation, um, in-depth interviews, both formal and informal uh, like, I, like I said, most most of my research was conducted in Reili and Dahong Prefecture. Some of it was conducted in Beijing. And the eighteen month period was. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, between two thousand three and two thousand six. Okay. But I'm, con- I'm constantly, <clears throat> constantly returning um, for you know a month or so at a time uh, until about two thousand twelve. Yeah, how is the oh, um, Sue Williams Amber Productions? Um, uh, how I'm interested in how the community uh, health organizations are responding to the AIDS epidemic. I mean, is are is there a concentrated response to the epidemic? Is there quality? Is there care available? I don't want to use the word quality, but is there care available? How are the local authorities dealing with the AIDS So the response really comes from the top, right? Anything in China comes from the top. Um, there, are, there, there were international organizations <clears throat> working towards the HIV epidemic in China. There are very few left at this point. So much of the funding has, been, has left China. Some of it, you know, some, so much of it was funded by bilateral aid organizations, which are no longer in China. Um, the Clinton Foundation was there, so there there were international there there you know there were international responses, um, and then the Global Fund came in, and the Global Fund funded something to the tune of I think it was uh, well, they eventually promised I think it was almost you know six hundred million dollars in grants. Um, they left early because China wasn't wasn't really upholding its part of the deal. Uh, and and that really that incited the the national response, and there was there was a huge national response, and the and the Chinese government stepped up to the plate, right? And it was the when the Chinese government stepped up to the plate that local governments could start to do something, right? Because there were there were policies, right? You don't do anything in China unless there's a policy to follow, um, and then and there were policies to follow. What's interesting is that. It took those policies quite a while to funnel down, right, to funnel down this vertical system. Um, and so sometime in the end of 2003, there was a policy passed. It was called the, the Four Freeze and One Care Policy, right? And it was a policy to provide free HIV testing and free education to AIDS orphans. Um, and the, the One Care was, was financial support for families that were affected by HIV, and this was the first really big national policy that had come out of China to respond is it, to HIV. Is the care still going on today? I mean, 
2016 is... It, the, pol the policy still exists. The, the thing about the policy, so, so it, was a big, it, was a, it was a big policy. It hit the international news pretty quickly. Um, anyone who, you know, watched the HIV epidemic internationally you know, from, 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 from outside or worked within it was extremely happy and extremely proud of, you know, what the national government had done. Um, it wasn't until eight months later when I was, I was doing this research when the local officials in this, in this city and in this prefecture came to me. And this, mind you, this is the most affected place in China. They came to me eight months later and said, you won't believe it. There's a new policy. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a new policy, the four freeze and one care policy. You know, they said to me, they said, the spring of HIV in China has arrived. We can now, we can now provide treatment to people. We can test people. And I was like, wow, you're just finding out about this now. Um, so, you know, it, it takes things a while to trickle down. Um, but there's also, there's, there's, there's no budget allocation, right? Uh, so the policy was there, but they had to, right, they had to pay for this themselves, so you ask about the one care, right? Um, the one care is actually a financial outlay that the local government is supposed to provide to families that are affected by HIV, but they don't have the money to do that. So the policy is there, um, but right, how how can it be followed, right? Karen. Karen Christensen, Publishing. Could you put this AIDS, AIDS epidemic, HIV epidemic, in context globally? I mean, just compare it to the states or to Africa. Who who got AIDS, who or, or HIV, and who were the main carriers? You said that it went from rural areas to the urban areas. Who carried it? Who care? So who carried it from? Because it's very different in the United States and Africa. I understand. So what yes. about China? Um, so yes, yeah, so it started in this in this very remote area. Um, the first thing that we ever really knew about HIV in China was an epidemic that ignited in the middle of the country, in Hunan province. Um, there was an epidemic of HIV that was being spread around people who were selling blood plasma. Uh, what happened? So this was the the the, the mid nineties, right? Um, Provinces, local governments were having to find ways to support themselves, to raise revenue, right, because fiscal decentralization had happened. Um, Henan province was very, very poor. Um, they didn't have much industry, but they had a lot of human capital. They had the largest, uh, the largest population in the country, 100 million people. Um, they also knew that there were companies that were looking for blood plasma to make drugs for hemophiliacs. And so they started buying blood plasma from peasants. And they'd pay them, I think it was 40, 40 renminbi, right, each time they donated blood plasma. So how do you donate blood plasma? Um, you extract blood from someone, and then you centrifuge out the plasma, and then you can reinfuse the rest of the blood, okay? And they wanted, but they wanted to do this en masse, right? They wanted to do, to do this efficiently. And so the most efficient way to do it was to take people who are of a common blood type and sit them around a one centrifuge uh, and right mix pool all their blood, centrifuge out the, the blood plasma, and then reinfuse the pooled blood into into everyone around that centrifuge. 
which is the most efficient way to also right trans, transmit a bloodborne disease, be it HIV, be it right hepatitis, any bloodborne disease. Um, However many people they could fit around a centrifuge, right? And this became it became a lucrative industry, and so that and so it became it. It started. It started. You know, the government started it, but there were a lot of people who were right. There, a, a big black market grew, um, and you found villages in Hunan where the HIV rate was eighty percent. So, but what I'm having trouble connecting is. The HIV epidemic, which is drugs down in the mm-hmm. southwest. That's what I'm about to go to get to. Is, is, the, right. is the blood scandal and then various other kinds of behavior. But, mm-hmm. but that's not adding up to Yingcho and sexual, beha- sexual behavior among uh, officials and this, businessmen. This is how the epidemic there, started. This is a shared needle right. problem. This is how the epidemic right. started. Mm-hmm. Um, but the epidemic, eventually it becomes a, a sexually transmitted epidemic. Um, and whereas originally we saw HIV happening in injection drug users and in the middle of the country through blood plasma donors, and you know there, there's also a disconnect between right how did it get to Hunan, um, and there are theories. I, I have a, an old an old classmate who comes from Hunan, who comes from the prefecture where the HIV epidemic was was centered in Hunan, um, you know, and the theories that go around there were, you know from what he would read in the local newspapers, that there were people who were trafficking drugs from Yunnan through, <coughs> through Hunan. And that, and, right, so the, there were those theories. Of, right, we don't know how it got from, from Yunnan to, to Hunan, um, but it then becomes a generalized epidemic. Right? It, becomes, it becomes a sexually transmitted epidemic. And if you look at the statistics, uh, the HIV statistics in China now, um, it, it's predom- HIV is predominantly a sexually transmitted infection now. It's no longer predominantly transmitted through through drug use. Just, just one last point. Lee Kuchang was head of the party of yes. the province at yes. the time yes. and um, really promoted the policy yes. of selling, buying and selling blood and famously said that you know, it really didn't matter because who cared about the peasants? Yep. So yep. It, 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 there was you know, a lot of government uh, promotion behind the policy mm-hmm. in Hunan and surrounding, and not just Hunan, but surrounding provinces yep. as well. Yeah. Just a clarification on that transmission. I, I thought that someone had documented the spread of HIV AIDS throughout China pretty much along long distance truck travel routes and, and spouts along the logging routes yeah, from true. Burma, really from Myanmar, yeah. up through Yunnan, but it mass. didn't. Yeah, I mean, the there are plenty of studies of, of drug trafficking routes. There are studies of drug trafficking routes that can show that or that, that they trace the, the path of of the of the drugs from Yunnan up into Xinjiang, out through Vietnam, out through Hong Kong. I've, I've never seen the logging one. So, uh, Carl Winston, Ford, and Law uh, Just a quick question. So, uh, effective the anti-corruption campaign on the intel practices of your people that you know and you know, what's, what's happened to them since? Has it changed their behavior in any way? As things go underground to sort of hidden clubs, et cetera. So, I can really only say anecdotally at this point. Um, I, haven't, I haven't done any systematic research. What I, I, I do hear anecdotally 
that things are changed to a certain extent. Um, there are men who spend a lot more time at home, who cook, <laughs> who are losing weight, who see their blood pressure and their cholesterol levels going down. Um, I also hear of health officials from, you know, provincial capitals who sometimes go to lower municipal levels who say, you know, oh, it was so good because, you know, in the provincial capital, we don't have to do this anymore, but we've gone, when we go to the lower municipal levels, we have to do it all over again. It's, it's like things never changed. Um, so there's that. And then there are the businessmen who are building their own private banquet rooms. Um, and I, went, I, I, I was in one over the summer. Uh, big, big real estate developer in Guangzhou who used the top of one of his buildings and built his own private banquet room and hired his own chef. Um, and, you know, you hear stories about this happening around China. So, you know, I think the anti-corruption campaign has gone a certain, a certain distance at this point. Um, but it's, it's, it's an incipient practice. Uh, also in the back. I, I just had a question about um, if you've heard of any anecdotal stories about male sex workers and transgender sex workers and the procurement of not only female sex workers but also male and people of, uh, who, who might identify as transgender in China. So what's your question? That in your ethnographic sort of observations, have you heard of any anecdotal stories of officials also purchasing sex not only for of a, um not only from female sex workers, but also from male sex workers or transgender sex workers as well? I've, I've met um, government officials, um, army personnel uh, in gay bars uh, who I would imagine would, you know, would likely procure the services of male sex workers. But that's not part of Yingcho practices. It's, 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 it's a different story. It's a different story. And there are definitely transgendered sex workers in China. And it's a different story because that it's not happening be... around a banquet table, and it's right. It's not. It's not. It's not part of the same process. Because it it's more of an individual seen process. As something outside the usual social norms. I mean, that's yeah, and that's not what would be offered, right? Your host would likely not offer you a male sex worker, um, and your host probably doesn't know you're gay. Your host would likely offer you a female sex worker. Along that same question, um, so you mentioned drinking and gambling. Well, you didn't. So you mentioned drinking and karaoke and sexual workers. You didn't mention gambling mm. or drugs as part of social intercourse. Are those two part of it, or if not? Gambling, absolutely. And I, I do talk about gambling in in the book. You know, and but gam. I don't think gambling is necessarily a standard part of Ying Chou practices, right? Because you can't gamble just anywhere in China. I happen to be in a place where you could gamble, right? If you go around the periphery of China, um, right, gambling is illegal in China. Um, but you can always find casinos right over the border. Uh, and there's a huge casino industry right over the border, right, right in Burma, in the Kachin State, right over the border from, from Rayleigh. Um, set and up precisely for the Chinese, right? Set That's up precisely, it, owned by the Chinese. I had friends who built casinos in the Kachin State. Um, and there's a huge hotel in, in Rayleigh, sort of the symbol of Rayleigh, um, and it's owned by this 
It's owned by a conglomerate, um, and they own they own casinos in the Kachin state. In fact, it's, it's owned by a Kachin person, um, Chinese Kachin. Uh, so the people come down, and there's a lot of gambling, um, and there's there's a lot of prostitution in the in the casinos. Um, I think we saw an, a defunct casino in right right in between North Korea and China. Right? I mean, if you go any any border in China, I've seen I've seen huge casinos over the border in Vietnam. Um, so it can be part of it. So it's, it's not a standard part. And the drugs? Um, drugs, uh, you, yeah. I mean, you see, you you see a lot of um, you do see a lot of drugs in in karaoke bars, in um, in discos in China. Again, I don't think it's it's a standard part of the practice, uh, but you, yeah. I mean, increasingly you see you see a lot of club drugs in China. Um, the the biggest drug problem right now in China is not heroin. It's um, what they call amphetamine-type substances, like methamphetamines. And they're all over the, the discos and clubs. Mm-hmm. John? I'm just wondering, anecdotally, I mean, compare this to Wall Street culture. I <laughs> <laughs> respect anyone. But, you know, I feel like the same stories are out there. Maybe things have changed in recent years, but you 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 make this sound like it's embedded in the Chinese culture, but not elsewhere. So, yeah, anecdotally compare, and then are there lessons that either side can draw from the other? So that that's a very good question. It's a question that was brought up to me by one of the people who reviewed this book. Um, there's a there's a woman at where is she? Boston College, or maybe she's at BU, named Ashley Muir. She's a sociologist. She actually got her PhD from NYU, and she's done a lot of research on what she calls the VIP culture in New York. Um, and so it was suggested to me that I read what Ashley Mears was writing because how, how was this different from this VIP culture? And so I did. Ashley Mears actually hadn't published anything about it at the time. I wrote to her, and she sent me her manuscripts, and there was actually nothing in what she was writing about that resonated with me. Hmm. Nothing about the culture of what she was observing that resonated with me. So there's different motivations. You know, people ask me this about, about Japan and, and Korea as well, right? How is this different from what goes on in the karaoke bars in Japan? It's not that different from what goes on in the karaoke bars in Japan, but the motivation is different. Um, in Japan... You go to work during the day, right? They work really, really, really hard during the day, and then they go out at night and they play hard with each other, with the people, you know, their office mates, to strengthen, right, and underscore their relationships. Um, in China, this is this is work, right? And it's going on all day, and this this is their work. They don't spend much time in their offices, right? And 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 and, and used to be told to me, people used to say to me. You know, a man, a successful man, you know, is like ne- almost never seen in his office, right? A mildly successful man, you can find in his office, you know, every now and then. Someone who you find in their office all the time, they're not successful at all. <laughs> so this, this is their work, you know. It's not, and it's, 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 it's not just, it's not just what they're doing after work, after hours. 
in the back. Tom? Hi, thanks for your time. My name is Tom Hoffecker. Um, I actually taught for two years pretty close to Ray Lee. I taught in Lean Tom. Really? Wow. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> a lot of this and the pictures that you shared mimic my experience, I think you could say. And the question that I had for you is how are, a lot of what you talked about is about the government side of things and people trying to go business to government, but I'm curious what aspects of what we've talked about today are there in the business to business? So business people forming relationships, uh, especially in places where you might expect it. I don't think this happens in Beijing as much as maybe in Linsanse. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that things like this do happen in Beijing. The reason why I didn't do a lot of my research in Beijing is because it's much harder to see. Um, I think that, you know, things like this happen in Shanghai. People tell me about them, you know, but it, it's, it's, it's more difficult to observe. Um, and in terms of these things happening between businessmen, I mean, you know, the, the thing is, and especially where I observed most of this in Ray Lee, is the business, government officials become businessmen. So if it's happening between businessmen, um, some of those businessmen are actually government officials, uh, right? They're, you're, you're, you're not allowed to, you know, do business as a government official, but there are plenty of government officials out there these days who are part owners in businesses, um, who are facilitating business, who are, who are integral business partners, right? Integral partners with businessmen because if they weren't part of the partnership, the business wouldn't happen. Um, so if we define those people as businessmen, then yes, right? Things are happening between, right? From businessman to businessman. But otherwise, I would say, you know, no, there's, there's always got to be a government official in there, right? Because... Um, he or she is the person who facilitates a lot of the business. Karen. You mentioned that one of the men in the photographs you showed us had his girlfriend with him, and I understand that girlfriends are exceedingly common um, in China. Can you talk about the, these older men's young girlfriends and then their use of prostitutes? Um, so, yeah. Girlfriends are, yeah, they're exceedingly common. They're, they're a status symbol. Um, not only girlfriends, but wives, right? Multiple wives. Um, I met many men while I was in China who had multiple wives. Not legally, um, but they find a way. You know, I, the, the, there was this one man um, who became a good friend of mine. Uh, and he said to me one day, he said, I'm going to find a second wife. What do you think about me? <laughs> and he was waiting for me to, to put him down. Um, and he explained to me how he was going to do it. Right? He, he'd been married for a long time. Um, he had a child with his wife. And he wanted to be a good Confucian, which meant that he needed to give his, his parents more grandchildren. And he couldn't do that with his wife. She was a, she was a government official. Um, you know, if she had another child, she'd lose her job. Um, and so he would divorce his wife, find another another woman, a young, healthy peasant who wouldn't be too pretty because he didn't want her to actually threaten his relationship with his wife, um, and he would, he would marry her, and they would have a child. And then, you know, after the child was a couple of years old, he'd divorce her, and he'd get remarried to his, his true wife. Um, but he'd have two wives, and I met men with, you know, four wives, um, and so having multiple wives is, is very common. 
you know, and I, I, I'd speak to people who would say to me, you know, 90% of the government officials, not me, but 90% of the government officials, you know, have more than one wife or they have a lover, right? And it's very, very common to have a lover. And, and you know, often... And to take her to events. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, 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 you know, you travel and she's, right, you have, you have a family in another city that you travel to who takes care of you. Um, you know, that woman can serve a utilitarian purpose as well, right? You know, and a lot of what we hear about the declining economy in China um, is because men buy their girlfriends' apartments, right? And with the anti-corruption campaign, they can't do that as much. Um, and so, you know, the fact that maybe, you know, men don't have as many girlfriends or aren't buying them apartments anymore, right, is contributing <laughs> to the economic decline in China. So it's, it's very, it's very, very common. To follow up on that, you said that in answer to Chris's question that you often went into homes of your, the people who you traveled with and you got to know along the way. So when you spoke to the families, to the wives or to the children of the men, what was their attitude? They knew what you were writing about. So what was their attitude about being Cho and the husband being out every single night and the father not being home? Um, a lot of the children would say to me, my father's not healthy. My wives would say this too. My father's not healthy. My husband's not healthy. He has to be out all the time doing yin cho. He drinks a lot. Um, and actually, the the way I, I've, I've never heard the term before, I went to Rayleigh. And I went to Rayleigh on a on sort of a reconnaissance mission, you know, um, the summer before I started my field work. And I, I went to meet the head of the, the Department of, of uh, the Bureau of Health there. And I went home for dinner with a woman who worked for the local CDC, what was called the anti-epidemic station at the time. And it was her and her mother and her young son for dinner. And I said to her, where's your husband? Just sort of like naively. I knew nothing about this at the time. Where's your husband? Oh, he's out. You know, he has to go ying cho. Um, and that was the first time I heard the term. But I knew, I knew it was important. And people always talked to me about their husbands, their fathers who were unhealthy because they always had to be out, you know, doing yin And the unhealthy translates into alcoholism? Uh, alcohol, yeah. And alcohol and food and, and cigarettes. And does that then translate into any home abuse, either of the children or the wives? Not that I, not that I could ever detect. And in fact, um, the men who I knew, they didn't spend a lot of time at home. It wasn't, it wasn't much time for abuse. They didn't spend a lot of time at home at all. Um, but the, their proudest and happiest moments were when they got to be with their children. That's when they're, I mean, these were men who, you know, day in and day out they were doing this, and they weren't always very happy about doing it. The only times their faces would light up was when they were with their children. Jess? Um, so I'm assuming that many of these officials' wives unknowingly contracted HIV. Is there any type of, especially in this town specifically, is there any type of public education? Is there any type of like support group? Are they trying to, you know, are the officials' wives getting together and talking about this phenomenon? Or is it kind of, you know, the secret that everyone knows about but no one's going to talk about it? So, again, it's always really difficult to know... Um, you know whether government officials are contracting HIV because it's 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 
kept on the hush-hush. The Chinese government will not talk about this. Um, it is suspected, it's rumored that there are, you know, government officials in Zhongnanhai who are HIV positive, who, are, who have died of HIV. Um, in this town in particular, there was one low-level government official uh, who had contracted HIV, who was dismissed from his job afterwards, and his wife also contracted HIV. And they were sort of the fearless people who said, I don't care who knows about this, put me on television. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 was able to, I was able to speak with them. Um, but no, I mean, there's sort of no support groups for anybody, government official or not. I mean, there were programs, right? Um, there were a lot of international organizations that, that came into Rayleigh that, that ran HIV prevention and intervention programs. Um, but it was it was difficult for them to really sort of gather anyone together and uh, you know create then they they, they they tried to create you know sort of support group like things I, there were um, there's an organization called PSI Population Services International runs HIV programs around the world um, and they had a they had an office in Kunming and they opened up what's called a drop-in center right where people could go and there would be activities and community events and it's just hard it's, it's such a stigmatized disease it's hard to get people to to attend things like that do you think the women even were they aware of this as being you know something they should be concerned about do you think i mean is it no i don't think so husbands, my husband wouldn't contract hiv so i don't I don't think they were aware of it. I don't think they were aware of their of, of their. I mean, I spoke to a lot of women, um, wives of, of men, you know, who I knew were were out. Um, were they sleeping with their husbands? Were they having sex with their husbands? Do you think? I have been told that <laughs> that that perhaps they they weren't. No, they weren't. I. Yeah. But, I mean, have you, did you... I think you know, it's you know, interesting. Men would, you know, the, the, <laughs> the quietest night at a, the quietest night at a karaoke club or a disco in Rayleigh is Friday night, right? You always think, oh, Friday night, that's when everyone's going to go out, right? That's the quietest night at a, at a, at a karaoke bar or a disco in Rayleigh. Why? Because that's when the men are home accompanying their wives, right? That's when they go home and they pay attention to their wives, um... And so, you know, I don't know if they were having sex with them, but I think it was implicit in those responses. Different rules and, and totally different culture. How, how do these rules 
So, I mean, I think anyone who's gone to China to do anything, whether you're doing business, government relations, non-governmental relations, you're treated to a banquet. You're expected to drink. You're, you'll be offered cigarettes. I do know a lot of a lot of people who have been offered sex work as well, foreigners. Um, and it's just right. It's the custom. That's that's how we welcome you. That's how we tell that we can that we can trust you. Um, there was a there was a big big. There was a USAID supported projects for HIV projects um, when when I was in China. USAID doesn't have a mission in China, um, but they were they, these were projects that were funded through the Bangkok office. And when they went to start negotiating what they would do, um, right, the USAID officers who, who came from Washington were banqueted, expected to drink. Um, the person who was leading the trip had been a former drug user. He couldn't drink. Right? And, I mean, he had, a, he had a, you know, even he had to, um, you know, try to resist these practices. Um, you know, and so, yeah, these are, the, you know, you, you go as a foreigner, you're invited to partake in, in, in their customs, right? Um, I went on a, I went on a, a Senate staff delegation with, with John a couple of years ago um, after the anti-corruption campaign had started, and we were, you know, we were treated to banquets, and I said to one of our hosts, I said, you know, Gosh, you come to the United States, right? It's so embarrassing. We don't do this for you. And he said, we understand. You don't have the budget for that. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's also understood you know, that Chinese who have experience in the United States understand that these are not our customs, right? I will say I've been places with, with in, in the United States with Chinese people and they're not even offered a glass of water because... It's sometimes not even our custom to offer a glass of water, and they get quite insulted. Um, but it, that's not our custom, and, and they understand it. But, you know, right, when we go to their country, those are their customs. I want to thank all of you and thank Alana for our